Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This is The Last Lap. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and after our most recent throwback episode with Maria Bamford, we are back in your feed with another comedian who has a new book out this week about his own struggles with mental illness, Gary Gullman. As promised, we will be returning to our series of episodes with this year's Emmy nominees next month. But I am such a big fan of Gary's comedy that I really wanted to reshare the conversation we had just about two years ago, now that his new memoir, Misfit, Growing Up Awkward in the 80s, is officially on sale. Gary and I spoke at a really big moment in his career. Following the release of his truly excellent special, The Great Depression, he was preparing to play Carnegie Hall for the first time, less than five years after he walked out of the psych ward. He gets into some of that part of his life in the new book, but it's really more of an origin story, with each chapter focused on a different year of his childhood from kindergarten through 12th grade. As he explains near the top of this conversation, it was originally called K-12, through and he was already deep into working on it when we talked in 2021. There is so much great stuff in this episode, including some incredible stories about what it was like for him to be part of the Torgasm reality show on HBO with Dane Cook, and a lot more. So please enjoy my conversation with the great Gary Goleman. Welcome to the show. And I, I feel like I start a lot of these interviews asking comedians, you know, kind of casually, how's it going? How are you doing? But I feel like with you, I, I want to like seriously ask you, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm I'm doing excellent. I, I mean, I'm really, really grateful. I have about four and a half years of, of uninterrupted uh, mental health. So, that, so that, that's amazing. That's, um, yeah, it really is. It's the probably the longest run I've I've had in my in my adult life. So I'm I'm so grateful and and vigilant too. I mean, I'm careful about what I do every day so as to not invite a, a relapse or or another episode. So thanks for asking. I'm doing great. Yeah. Um, so we had I was looking back. We had we met for coffee in L.A. about just about almost exactly two years ago when you're uh, when the Great Depression was coming out. Um, yeah, and I, I remember, remember you were uh, you were kind of coming and going from all these Hollywood meetings. So I was curious if anything uh, has has come of those those meetings that you had around the, <laughs> the special coming out. Yeah, I mean, two really cool things have have come together. One was that I, I got a, a book deal to write a, a book for for. Flatiron Macmillan, and it's a it's a memoir about my grade school through twelfth grade. It's called K through twelve, but it also talks about some of my uh, adult stuff as it relates to my my childhood. And then I'm developing a, a series with with Adam McKay's company and this uh, brilliant writer named Zach Bornstein about my ill-fated college football career. So, yeah, so that's really cool. And that's great. Um, yeah. So some really cool things have, have come out of the, the, I, I guess the acclaim or the, the, 
uh, exposure I got from from the Great Depression. I'm I'm really really excited and grateful for that. I mean, I, I say grateful over and over again, and I hope it doesn't sound corny, but it, it's there's no better way to describe my my state of of mind these days. Yeah, I mean, I'm as as I think you know, I'm just such a big fan of of yours and of the Great Depression. Um, you know, I I called it the funniest special of that year with three months to go still in the year. So I feel like that was pretty strong. <laughs> I was really really happy that you said that. I I really appreciate that. That was so nice. And there were some great specials. So I I really it was a great compliment. Yeah. How do you feel like you receive uh you know positive feedback on something like that in general when you when you had that special come out that really did get so much attention. And, and so much, you know, great, great stuff. I mean, the the, the best part of it really were, were the the messages that I continue to get every every single day. No exaggeration. People reaching out and saying how it it helped them or pointed them in the right direction. I got one yesterday or the day before where, where somebody had had done the ECT because of seeing about it in my special and and credits the ECT with with changing their life. So I'm, I, I get these messages and I, I think that's the greatest part of it. I mean, the acclaim and the, and the exposure, the increased number of people at my shows, I mean, that's really terrific personally, but I, I feel like the, the lasting impact is, is re- really where it's at for me because I, I really, I, I, I knew going in that in the past, if, if a project this ambitious were to not be put on TV as a lot of my specials struggled to get to get on TV for some took a year or two years or three years and, and more. So I, I knew that I had to have some other, I guess, measure of success other than it being on TV. And the, the measure of success I was using along the way was that it, it was helping people and making people feel less less isolated or less alone or giving them some ideas as to how they could go about treating themselves or, or giving them some hope that there was some recovery in, in the future. So so that that was really important. And then everything after that is is sort of this this, this frosting or icing or however you wanna wanna <laughs> label it. But it, it feels it feels really good and and I I mean as a as a comedian it's 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 nice to have audiences live and 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 there to see you but it's even nicer when you have audiences that are that are there particularly to see you rather than just a comedy show and 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 that's that's what the, this type of thing has enabled me to to secure in my in my work is that the audiences are there to see me and it's it's not so much that the audiences are easier which they are but I can talk about things that are that are more personal and feel comfortable, and and that that I I think has has helped me become a, a better comedian, which is which is something that I I hadn't anticipated. I, I mean I, I'm I'm always working towards that, but I didn't I didn't realize that just sort of the confidence as as well as the the audiences that are already there who appreciate you is is really a, a, a great help in, in reaching high, higher levels of, of, I guess, craftsmanship. And, and, and so I'm, I'm really, really happy about that. I have taken antidepressants on and on <laughs> for 30 years. And because of the nature of antidepressants, sometimes they 
don't work and you have to try something else. Sometimes they work and then they stop working and you have to try something else. Sometimes they work but they're not good enough. You need to augment them with something. So over the years, I have tried Pamelor, Nortriptylin, Wellbutrin, Zoloft, Paxil, Abilify, Adderall, Ativan, Clonopin, Deloxetine, Mirtazapine, Sertraline, Apexa, Selexa, Zyprexa. <laughs> At one point, my doctor said, let's just try drugs that rhyme. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Seuss. Yeah, I heard you say in an interview, um, I think it was with Kevin Hart uh, recently, that you didn't really feel like you understood, you know, that comedy didn't click for you until you were 25 years in, which was about three years ago, <laughs> um, I mean, which is funny. But I mean, I, I, how, what, what did that feel like for you to, you know, how did it change after 25 years? Well, I, I, I mean, it's an exaggeration that I, I knew what I was doing and, and I was pretty good at it. But the thing that clicked was that being, being vulnerable and opening up and being personal rather than making observations that, that really weren't, weren't, they weren't that risky. And I, I had never connected with the audience in, in that way and that intimately. And, and this is a different, this is a, a, a different type of, of experience. And, and, I, I mean, I probably didn't have the the confidence. I also didn't have an audience that would would be patient with me fumbling around like the audience I have now. So uh, it, it probably took twenty five years just to just to get that audience that would allow me to be myself. But yeah, like I was telling Kevin, it's a, a completely different different ball game when you when you're opening up and being vulnerable to the audience. They. They feel it a different way, and the and the reaction I, I get afterwards when I when I meet with them or or speak with them through through the various messaging systems it's it's really edifying. Does it make you wish that you had been more vulnerable on stage, sort of from the beginning or earlier on, or how do you think about that? Well, well, I think it was. I was vulnerable, but in a different way. I was. I always feel like even somebody like Jerry Seinfeld, who doesn't really talk about himself that much. It was when he first started, and and into the '80s, it was vulnerable to talk about odd things like that as a as an adult. You you could be <laughs> yeah. people would be like, "What well, what is with this guy?" Or or Stephen Wright. You don't really know that much about his personal life, but it, it is you're very vulnerable up there being that that smart and, and, and that out there. So I, I think I was vulnerable in my own way, but this, this way of being vulnerable is, is just, uh, it's, it's hard to explain to a, to a young person to be vulnerable on, on the stage when you go out there every time and you're vulnerable and, it, and it's painful. So I did it at a, at a point in my, in my career where I, I already had some fans and they could be open to to hearing me talk about some things that were more personal so i i would say i was vulnerable as soon as i could with with what i was working with which was sort of a a, a, a small fan base and not a great deal of of confidence in in what i was doing so so now the if you add the confidence and also the audience it's it's a, a new experience for me yeah, i'm really it all I'm comes really together enjoying it yeah 
Yeah. One thing that I think your special, that special does, and it's something you talk about in the special as well, um, I think with uh, Bobby Kelly, disproves this myth that artists need darkness and depression to be creative to, and comedians need to be depressed to be funny somehow or something like that. And so how have you thought about that, you know, especially as you've kind of moved forward from that material and, and into, into new stuff, that myth and, and what that, the damage that maybe it does to, to people? Sure. I mean, that's such a great question. And it's funny because I was, and I don't mean to be a name dropper, but I was discussing this with Tignataro the other day. And she said, and we agreed on this, we feel that Comedians are no more likely to be depressed or anxious or mentally ill, but we're much more likely to talk about it on stage. So that's why it, it seems what we're convinced is that is that most people are having a really difficult time of it <laughs> or or have at some point in their in their life. And so when when somebody goes into comedy and they are convinced that their their superpowers that unlike most people they're depressed or, or anxious, then they think that by treating that or getting rid of it or subverting it that somehow they're they're being dishonest or they're muting their their energy or superpower or or some other myth like that. And it's just not necessary to suffer for your art. It's, it's romantic and it sounds great and there will be some sacrifice and sometimes it's painful to address these things, but there's no reason to put yourself into a, a position that is, that is unhealthy or that is, is causing you a great deal of continuous, unabated pain. I think most of us have plenty of suffering to work off of and, and relate to and make us empathic and, and be open about. I, I mean, I've heard so many authors say you really have enough, enough trouble in your life by the time you're, you're 18 to work and write novels or whatever it is that you want to write for the rest of your, your life. So I, I, I think it does a disservice to people who, who feel they need to suffer for their art or or muddle through with their art because it's the the price of this, the, the cost of doing business and and I, I I had this this tweet that I put out when I, when I was just giving advice on comedy and and or tips on comedy and it was it was something to the effect of if you're if you're struggling with your mental health put aside your your work your comedy your art to concentrate on getting better let your art suffer for you rather than letting your yourself suffer for your art and and that really resonated with people and it, and it it's something that i visit a lot in in my head and when i when i give advice to people it's it's that there 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 are people who who are really making a valiant heroic effort to do their comedy and i just tell them it will be so much easier if you would just take some time and and get well and 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 address what's going on because i i I mean, I'm surprised at, at what I was able to accomplish dragging just a thousand pounds of weight behind me. And now that I'm not, I'm, I'm able to work on multiple projects and, and, and I, I, I still procrastinate, but I, I don't beat myself up and call myself a loser and lazy and a failure for, for not meeting deadlines. It's, it's just a different way to go through life with, without that voice in your head that is depression a lot of times telling you how worthless you are. Yeah, I mean, it seems like you you have been incredibly productive in these past couple of years. I know you have basically your 
you, can you explain this to me? You're touring two hours at the same time right now, or you're about to? Yeah, yeah. I wrote about an hour and a half after I finished writing The Great Depression, and I was touring with that after The Great Depression aired so that I wouldn't be doing jokes from something they had just seen on TV for free. So I, I was doing that, and then there were places that I got to in the first few months before the pandemic of the first few months of January, from January to March of 2020. That, so that was called the Peace of Mind Tour. And then there were places that I had to reschedule. So they'll, they'll see the Peace of Mind Tour, but then it's time to go back to some of the places. So I have this, this other, I guess it, it'll probably be between 75 minutes and 90 minutes that I, that I wrote since, since starting the Peace of Mind Tour and and going into hiatus for a year and a half or whatever it is. And then I've been, I've been working at the, the, the clubs and bars and libraries and bookstores in, in New York city over the past, over the past, since June, I guess the end of May, I started working out again. And, and so the, so that is added to what is the born on third base tour, which is, is personal, like the peace of mind and the, and the Great Depression. It's not as difficult to talk about the things in, in this one. There's nothing about ECT or, or being in the psych ward or anything like that, so it's, it's much lighter. Not that it was that. By the time I had written it and toured it, I, I had enough distance that it wasn't really painful to recall those things, but there were nights on a, on a Friday night late show at a comedy club that, that I thought, oh, I may, I may bail on this if they're not up to it. <laughs> Did that happen? Rarely. I will honestly say rarely. I mean, there, there were, I think there was a, a show in, in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where the audience was, was hostile. And I got, I got, I got a, a note <laughs> and I don't know why the manager showed this to me. Maybe he, maybe he was trying to give me a message, but somebody had written in, in all caps and a pencil on a comment card, don't talk about depression. And, <laughs> and I remember thinking that I would not be deterred by this, by this one note, because the great thing was that I had just come from a meet and greet where a dozen people had told me how much it meant to them. So I had, for every negative piece of feedback, I had enough feedback to keep me, to keep me pointed in the right direction. Yeah. Whoever wrote that note obviously didn't know who they were going to see, I think. Is it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, the thing was, is that I hadn't, I hadn't really been talking about depression prior to that tour. It was, it was early on. And, and the thing is, I, I, I wish I had kept the comment card, but I was so disgusted <laughs> by it. I, I threw it out, but it would have been one of those fun rejection letters that people people save to to show that their their strength. I saw that your 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 tour does include a, a big stop at Carnegie Hall uh, for the New York Comedy Festival. Have you played there before? No, no, and I've never even. I mean, I don't know how common it is that people who aren't opera or or. Um, orchestra fans go to Carnegie Hall, but I've never even been inside. Oh, wow. And, and, and so, I'm, I, I mean, it's, it's really cool because it's the first venue that everyone in my family has heard of. <laughs> and I've heard only amazing things about the experience of being inside it. So I'm, I'm again, it's, it's, it's just crazy because four or five years ago, I was in a... Um, I was in a psych ward thinking, yeah, I may not be able to do comedy after I get out of here because it's so stressful and, and I'm so anxious about it. And, 
and to do Carnegie Hall, it it, it almost seems like a, a dream or a really corny TV movie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's really evidence of how far you've come, you know, since that for instance, that clip that we see at the beginning of the Great Depression, oh, where you're uh, where you're struggling to get a sentence out at a club, that yeah, you're now going to go play it, Carnegie Hall and you know in front of all these people who really who really care about you and and love you. Yeah, it's yes, that's a great way to, to say it. I appreciate that. Yeah, that makes me really really happy. I'm really really proud of this. Uh, so I just rewatched the Great Depression, um, you know, ahead of this interview, and the one one thing that just hit me in a different way that I wanted to ask you about um, is. You have a joke about taking ketamine and how it's a um, originally designed as a horse tranquilizer, and I couldn't help but thinking about the whole uh, ivermectin, oh, you know, right, debate right. and how that's a medicine that's a that's a horse <laughs> medicine that everybody's taking. Um, so I'm wondering if you have any uh, you know unique uh, perspective on that, given your your experience with ketamine. And you joke I, about I, pretending uh, to be going in and pretending to, to be a ketamine. horse. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I dressed as a horse to get more ketamine. You could I mean, repurpose that bit for uh, for today if you, right, if you wanted to. Right. <laughs> I mean, the thing that I most mostly think about is that I have read a number of studies, and there's actually a great book about it by Michael Pollan about the use of not ketamine, but but about psilocybin mushrooms, and just that the these things that were not associated with treating depression just ten years ago are now very very promising, and I I guess the the Iver Mectin is it's a laughing stock, whereas ketamine is actually used fairly frequently for people with suicidal plans and actions, and it's very good for people with PTSD. So, th- so there is some proof of its efficacy, whereas ivermectin seems seems to be this hail mary sort of snake oil. So, I, yeah, I, it's not exactly the same thing. <laughs> No, but it's crazy how I mean the one thing with the with depression in general is that it's sneaky. I mean it, it reminds me of the way people talk about their addictions that it'll use any any manner fair or unfair to try to take you over and and if I ever questioned the sturdiness of my recovery, the pandemic was a was a great test and my my medication and probably more importantly, my routines and things that I do to keep the depression at, at bay held up against a really stressful situation. So I'm, I'm, I'm very comfortable recommending certain things that I did along the way to people because they're, they turned out to be effective under extreme circumstances. Yeah. The other part of the, your last special that I just love is all the stuff about um millennials and how you, you know, you talk about how you admire millennials in a way that uh, a lot of other comedians your age, and I believe you just turned 50 last year. So congratulations. Yeah. Uh, yeah thanks, man. Thank you. Kind of deride millennials for being, you know, sort of spoiled and weak and all this stuff. And you take a really different take on it. I grew up in the, in the seventies and eighties and I'm ugh, as a sensitive boy, not a, not a very accommodating time for sensitive boys. Like, I really admire and envy millennials. They're so much nicer to each other than we were. Bullies were rampant when I was growing up. And, and millennials, your stance on bullying is to be commended. I have a theory on why millennials are so much nicer to each other than we were, and it, it's that millennials grew up much better hydrated than we did. 
water just was not a consideration when I was growing up. And I'm, I'm not one of these middle-aged men who will come up here and say, we didn't even need water. We needed it desperately. We walked around the decade dizzy and listless. We needed water. And I was curious because now, since we talked this special um, that Bo Burnham put out, that is also a lot, I think, about depression and anxiety yeah. and all this stuff. And he's sort of a you know famous millennial, I guess. So I'm wondering if you got a chance to see that and what you what you made of of that special. I watched it. I think the week it came out, and I mean, you. I don't know if I read a review by you or a comment by you, but I think you'll agree it was it was astonishing. I mean, it, it 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 was very funny, but it it also was painful and raw, and I mean, it just it was transcendent because it's also a musical and it's a comedy and it's a tragedy. I mean, I I met him one time, and the thing that stuck with me is one I couldn't get over that he was he was taller than me, and I'm six yeah. foot six. You guys so are that, probably the, the two tallest comedians, maybe. Yeah, we, I was with Pete Holmes, so the, uh, was oh, the yeah. other one. Wow, that must yeah. have been quite a scene. And, yeah, it was backstage at Largo, <laughs> and, and I met him. The other thing is that, I mean, we meet a lot of smart people in this, in this business, but he's an intellectual. Like, he's one of the smartest people I've ever heard speak. His thoughts and his ideas and his vocabulary are just really impressive for anyone, never mind somebody his age, never mind somebody who's so gifted musically. I mean, his talent is just, it's, it's, if, if he wasn't such a nice guy, it would be infuriating that somebody got that much talent. But also it, it goes to my thesis, and I bring it back to myself, which is obnoxious, but <laughs> that talent and success and accomplishment do not ward off depression and anxiety and feeling lousy about yourself. You're not protected just because you're so talented and you can't look in the mirror and say, well, I'm, I'm Bo Burnham. I should feel good about myself. And so I do. And, and it was so beautiful. And they, I mean, my thing about the millennials is, is if I had nothing good to say about the millennials, I wouldn't say anything just because every other, and I mean every other, like half of all comedians are doing kids these days comedy where they're ridiculing millennials and it's and the audiences are laughing because they're conditioned to think that millennials are soft and entitled and it's I mean a generalization is true in some cases that doesn't make it the preponderance or the majority of it I, I mean my experience with millennials is very positive and I also feel like instead of putting them down we should apologize to them for leaving them with such a chaotic world and buried in debt for their educations. I mean, I mean we, were, we were so busy trying to get, my generation was so busy trying to get rich and get ahead that we, we, did, we weren't activists for climate change or against racism or sexism or LGBTQ plus causes and, and we're just so selfish. So if anybody is to be come down on, it's the Gen X and baby boomers, but there were good people amongst us too. So it's really easy to generalize a, about a group by that, especially when the audiences are so keen to laugh along and, and cheer for that. Just in the service of originality, I, I would stay away from it, but I found them to be actually more in line with my ethos than a lot of other age groups. Yeah, well, as an old millennial myself, I, I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's a pleasure and I, I appreciate your appreciation. 
Coming up, Gary looks back at some early highlights from his career, including the real reason why he bailed on Dane Cook's Torgasm reality show 15 years ago. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes. Until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. If you're enjoying this episode and want to hear more, please make sure you are following The Last Laugh wherever you get your podcasts. In addition to Gary Goldman, we have had so many incredible stand-up comedians on this show, including Tig Notaro, Mike Birbiglia, Maria Bamford, Patton Oswalt, and more. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to those episodes and everything else from our free archive, and you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts to let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to Gary Gullman. So uh, the other thing I recently rewatched a little bit of, um, which I wanted to ask you about, is uh, Dane Cook's Torgasm, which is uh, having its 15th anniversary this year. Oh, really? Which is kind of insane. Are they celebrating it anyway? I haven't seen any celebration, uh, but I noticed that it was 15 years old since it came out. Oh, that's interesting. (laughs) I hadn't thought about that. Wow. And I think, you know, I realized that it was probably the first time that I saw you, you know, do stuff on TV. And and I was, uh, I I definitely was was into that show when it came out as a comedy fan. And and it was sort of an early behind the scenes. It was like sort of like a reality show about comedy, which I had never seen before. And so I wanted to ask you a little bit about that. Where were you in your career at that time when you ended up, you know, getting the, the opportunity to be part of that tour and that, and what ended up being a reality show, which maybe you didn't know when you signed up to be on the tour. I don't know. Yeah, it was interesting. A couple of things. One was that I had just been on Last Comic Standing. I had come in third with Alonzo Bowden and John Heffern had won that season. And then we had done a a follow-up season. And that was, I think, Alonzo Bowden won. I got voted off earlier on. and, And anyhow, I had done some TV and was selling tickets on my own, but the interesting thing was that it had dissipated really quick. I was sort of back where I started after the show went off the air, and it was kind of like, wait a minute, I, I, I was selling a lot of tickets, and then I'm not selling any tickets, and I couldn't understand it. Yeah, the whole last comic standing thing seems very has always seemed kind of strange to me and and the 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 effect that because i think it ends up on a lot of you know when they list people's credits on uh at clubs it was there a lot but i wasn't ever sure that it the impact that it had and it sounds like it wasn't that deep it wasn't that deep it was it was short-lived i mean it was pretty much a, a summer and fall of being sort of the flavor of the month and then just going back to really hustling to sell even a small amount of tickets in it. And it was it was frustrating because all I wanted to do was to be able to, to tour and get out and earn my living as a stand-up comedian. And it was it was next to impossible or or it was it was a real struggle. I was breaking even for for years as far as travel costs versus how much I was making in the 
in the clubs, as a, a lot of comedians will will tell you, and and so I I that's where I was. I had just come off Last Comic Standing, maybe six months prior, and we were shooting that show, but it was on spec, as they say in show business, where you don't have any money, nobody's paying you to do it. Dane was just filming it on his own, and and I guess planned to either sell it to his fans on his website or sell it to a network. And then by the time that tour was over, he was the he was the flavor of the decade. I, I mean, the, the people were going crazy to try and work with him. And so he sold all the, the, the I guess, film or whatever it is that they, they shot it on to HBO. And they produced a, a, a series out of all this footage that, looking back on it, I had no idea anybody was ever going to see it. So I just was... <laughs> happy to be miserable the entire time and yeah. then they showed it and I, <laughs> what was your reaction when you saw it you know that it when it came out i remember thinking to myself i, I had i had i known anybody was going to see it i i wouldn't have been so miserable and maybe i would have been on a better behavior but in in the moment i just i thought it was kind of cool and again i was hoping it would help me to sell tickets but then robert kelly and i went out on a on a tour and we didn't the show was a the show was about Dane, and we didn't sell that many. We we did okay. They wanted to in see some Dane. Places than others. They wanted to see Dane, and and show business is humbling on its own. And then you get these extra special humblings in in those cases. And and so, I mean, it, it was fun to be out on the road with Robert Kelly, and we had a really good time. We had we had been waiters together growing up in Boston doing comedy, so we had a. A really long history together but it, it was it was really humbling and I, I I was really trying to come to terms with the idea of being a sort of a Robin or a Scotty Pippen to to Dane's Batman and Michael Jordan and not what you imagined for yourself well in your 30s in show business there's a lot of maybe not everybody goes through this there's a it's very competitive and your ego gets involved and that makes it very, very painful. So, I mean, I'm glad I did it because if I didn't do it, I would have regretted not doing it. But at the, at the same time, I, I wish people hadn't seen me being so unhappy. And, and I, I mean, I was, really, I was really depressed on that tour because it was just, it was very hard to get any sleep. And I couldn't do a lot of the things that I did back then to, to maintain my sanity, like exercising and, and writing and trying out new jokes and being in somebody's, somebody else's orbit at that point in my career was not easy for me. Yeah. I mean, it was a very also kind of broy vibe on that bus <laughs> from what I could tell, which doesn't, doesn't exactly fit you as I, as I know you now. So I'm, I'm wondering if you didn't, didn't feel like you fit in very well with that scene. Right. Yeah. The interesting thing is that I look like a bro but yeah. I'm, visually I'm you really, fit in great yeah but, uh, yeah. yeah i'm physically yeah i'm physically a bro but internally i'm more of the guy who works at the at the coffee shop and and reads Camus late into the night <laughs> and then you had you sort of had a mysterious disappearance in the middle of the uh show which uh you know they tried to yeah. mine some drama <laughs> out of i had a great time tonight everybody thank you kent was the first show that the four amigos were not performing together Gary goes away for five days. I don't know 
what I feel about Gary even returning. How much does he care about this entire project? It started to unravel, and I wasn't sure if it would come back together and, and, and lock itself together for the show. Yeah, they dramatized it, but the truth was is that there was, there was a, uh, I had a college gig that was paying more than the entire tour paid me. That's not so good. So I had to, yeah, I had to. That doesn't to speak accept. highly of the tour. Yeah, the tour was not very lucrative. That original one where we just went out and it, and it hadn't been sold to HBO yet. So I needed to accept the gig. And so I missed a couple of days. And I will say I dragged my feet to get back on the tour. I, I held out as long as I could to miss as much time because how close were you to not going back i was on the phone to my manager asking them to get me a flight out of i think it was villanova to go back to la because i i had reached my my (laughs) limits as far as how long i could stay on a on a on a bus sleeping with three other guys three three maniacs yeah and and eating poorly and not getting any exercise so it was a nightmare well it's quite a document if anyone hasn't seen it to to see what what comedy was like in 2005 6 uh, <laughs> and that and that scene yeah in in some ways it was it was sort of a a real life entourage of a, of yeah, a it, exactly. it has a similar it has a similar type of arc where this guy who isn't all that famous all of a sudden he's super famous and his friends are there to to witness it and mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. i don't know how well anybody handled it so yeah, yeah. well yeah well it's uh we've yeah. come a long way good, since then in, uh, in goodness, so many ways good, yeah good nostalgia though Looking ahead, um, you mentioned your book that you're working on. I also saw that you're involved somewhat in this uh, Amy Schumer show, Life and oh, Death. Yeah, is that a, is that right? Yeah, yeah. I have a recurring part on that, and it was it was so much fun. And you already shot it, or, or yeah, I shot my my portions, and I think it might have I might have wrapped. So I was I was in like four or five episodes. I speak in three or four of the of the episodes that I'm on and it was, it was really fun and she's a really good friend, but also she's, she's just a, a really impressive actor and writer. And I, I, I got so much out of it. And I, I mean, I, it's an area that much like with my comedy where I, where I needed more confidence acting as a, is a similar thing where the, the more I do it, the better I get. And, and it's all a matter of, of comfort and, and knowing there was a there was a man named Kevin Kane who's sort of Amy's production partner and and he's also an actor and he's terrific and he was so good at giving me direction and and sort of things to think about in the within the scene that it, it was he was wonderful and he didn't make me feel like an amateur or dumb or it was great I had such a great time and and. I mean, I, I was on in that movie Joker, but I played, I literally played a comedian telling my joke. It was, yeah, I, I was just yeah, myself. so funny. So I, talked that, to Sam, I talked to yeah. Sam Morell about that too, because uh, oh, he was right, in it right, too. Right. Yeah. yeah, that was really fun, but I didn't have to do any, any acting really. And in this, I, I, there was some acting involved. So it, it was terrific. Well, when I saw your character's name is Shlomo, I was instantly intrigued. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I don't want to give I don't want to give too much away, but he's a uh, he's a a man who is is committed to his religion in a in a way that I'm I'm not as committed, but but can understand and get behind. Like I have enough 
knowledge and religious education to understand where he was where he was coming from. So it was it wasn't too big of a stretch. <laughs> That's great. I can't wait to see that. Yeah, me too. I'm excited. I'm excited. So as you know, this podcast is called The Last Laugh, and we end uh, with the first laugh, which is like our speed round. So I'm going to ask you about a bunch of uh, firsts, if that's okay. Oh, yeah, sure. So let's start going way back. Do you remember what the first piece of comedy that made you laugh really hard was? Something that you really connected with uh, maybe as a kid or growing up or or something when you think about that? I, I think that older brother Max had a Steve Martin album and then a friend of my family, uh, Brenda Siegel, she had the same album. I think it was called Let's Get Small or it might have been a wild and crazy guy. But but Brenda had both of them and that we would play them. She, she's like 10 years older than me, I think, and or nine years older than me. But she would babysit for me and she would play them both back to back. And we would laugh and repeat the lines. And, and so those were those were probably my first really big laughs and and so, but but most of my laughs came from Saturday Night Live and then particularly one comedian when I was a kid would be on a lot of the daytime talk shows as well as Carson was was David Brenner so so it was probably tied between Steve Martin and David Brenner who were who were getting the most of my my first hundred laughs of my life <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you remember the first time that you knew you were funny in first grade the teacher said what is a chick? And the really smart kid in the class, she said, this girl named, let me think what her name was, because I, I have to remember all these things for my, for my book. <laughs> yeah. her, her name was Laurianne M. I won't give her last name to protect her, her anonymity, but Laurianne M. said, a baby chicken. And then the teacher said, yes, very good, Laurianne. And I said, and I timed it beautifully, I said, or a girl. <laughs> and... And the teacher laughed and everybody laughed in the class and it was, it was exhilarating. And probably, I mean, I was also probably getting laughs at home, but that was the, that was the biggest audience I ever had. That That was was your first joke. Yeah. That was like 25 (laughs) kids laughing at at once and the teacher. And it it was just, it, it was, it felt so good. I'll never forget that. What do you remember about your very first time telling jokes on stage doing stand up? I remember two very distinct very different feelings. One was that the first joke I told, which was a topical joke about Michael Jordan's retirement, because I my first show was on October 11th, 1993, and the joke met to complete silence. <laughs> and and I can remember my legs, if my knees had been closer together, it would have been knocking. They were shaking so so badly. And I was like, oh no, this thing that I had I had planned on becoming my life. I am a failure at, and then then I I did some impressions, and the audience loved them. I did impression of of Kramer from Seinfeld, and and Robert De Niro, and the audience loved them, and and I was hooked. And I've I've spent most of my energy since then trying to to get on stage or prepare to be on stage most of my time since that since that night. I mean, the, the main thing that happened in the first year of doing comedy is I had a, a, a whole bunch of impressions. And then I saw this special by Paul Reiser where he just, he just spoke. He never did any voices or woman voices or, or different voices that, or impressions. And I said, oh, you can, just, you can just go up there and be yourself. That's, 
that's much easier. That's what I'm going to do. And, <laughs> yeah. and so that's, that, that's what I adopted. But it was, I guess it was good early on to get the laughs by doing the, the, the impersonations. So maybe when you started just speaking as yourself, what is the first joke that you remember really working and, and connecting with an audience just as yourself? Yeah, I, I had this joke about they had just started offering cappuccinos at 7-Eleven. And I, I made fun of the fact that I said, um, it's good to know I can get a big gulp cappuccino. And then if you, if you have 64 ounces of cappuccino, you'll be awake for the next 7-Eleven weeks. And that was, the, that was the joke. And it would get a good laugh. It was enough that I, I wanted to get on stage and tell it. But it, like, like half my act, it doesn't hold up 10 years later. <laughs> um, since you, you mentioned that you know how you were giving comedy advice every uh every day on twitter i think for a year right um what's the what's either the first or or best piece of comedy advice that you got early on in in your career yeah i think the best information i got was and it was almost as if the man he didn't say this but it was like yeah do with this what you will but know this all your work getting on stage doing shows will come from other comedians you could really extrapolate that to be every piece of work will come from other comedians. They'll get you the work that leads to the work that leads to the work. And, and I mean, just in the case of, of, I don't think I got the role on the Amy Schumer show because I'm friends with her, but it didn't, it didn't hurt. And, and I, 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 I think it, it, it made me more comfortable going into it. And, and it just, so it's, it's such great advice. So, and, and do with that what you want. You can be difficult to be around and a jerk and critical of people, or you can be a, a good colleague and encouraging and friendly. And I mean, the, the second way is just so, so much more desirable because you'll, you'll enjoy yourself much more because it's, it's competitive enough without adding the sort of treachery that some people in show business feel is part of the game, which it's, it's just, it, it may be part of it, but it's the worst part of it. It's not, it's not really necessary. What do you remember about your late night stand-up debut? You've done so many great late night sets over the years, but what was the first one and and how did it go and and what do you remember yeah. about it? Yeah, the first one was was the Tonight Show with Jay Leno and it was October of 1999 and it was perfect. <laughs> it just he was nice. He called my mom afterwards on the phone and spoke to her and and he was he was generous with with pictures and and he sat in the green room with my friend and I another comedian and talked to us and it was just exactly like you would want it to go and the audience was very generous and laughed and applauded and I, I just I had a great time and it was fun I mean there was a time I guess when people will say well you would get famous from doing the tonight show but that that actually wasn't wasn't true. Even Steve Martin, I think in his book said it, he had done it like seven times before yeah, anybody really. That's kind of a to, myth. Yeah. It's I think, kind Drew, of a I myth. think Drew Carey is the one that everyone always talks about is the, yeah, the, the only or, person who right. really got famous from the tonight show. Yeah. Or, or Freddie Prinze was an, another one, but a, a lot of people, it took a while. So the only thing that you have to, and this was one of my tips you have to be aware of is that it's it's not going to make you famous, but you should be really proud of yourself because it's very difficult to get there. And it's something that if you 
were a little kid and, and you t told that little kid that someday you would be on TV, you would be very excited and look forward to it in an exciting way. So I always tell people to appreciate it and, and not run it down because it doesn't, it doesn't make you famous overnight, which I don't think is, the more I learn, the, really not something to strive for. It's it's being good at what you wanted to do that that really matters. I think like a lot of comedians, you've probably been on Conan's show more than any other late night show. And since he just, you know, wrapped up his his nightly show and um, there's been a lot of attention around that. Um, I was just wondering if you have a, a memory of uh, a Conan memory to share. And I think the one that for me and the one that obviously got you the most attention was the, the state capital bit um, that just totally blew up and I think has like 2 million views online and it's probably the only thing that a lot of people have seen of you is that is that state capital bit. So what's next? Arizona, AI, there we go, we're back on track. Next, Arkansas, shit. <laughs> uh, no, we'll come back to it, it's not gonna happen again. What's next? California, CA, there we go. Next, Colorado, CO, Momentum, Connecticut. <sighs> we are screwed. Somebody needs a drink, not now, Dottie. <laughs> Not now, you vulgar lush. <laughs> by the time they got to Maine, Maryland, Massachusetts, followed by Michigan, Minnesota, Mississippi, and Missouri, shots were fired. <laughs> they, were, they were at each other's throats. So they did what any savvy business would do. They hired a consultant. They brought in a contractor. I'm sorry, not a, not a contractor, a contractor. A man... <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that thing was crazy because... When I did it in the room, I thought, okay, that went fine. I didn't expect it to live on because they just don't. They air, your friends and family call you, and, and it was a great time. It's sort of like having a birthday. And then, and then it's gone, yeah. Yeah, and then it was almost a year later that Patton had, had seen it and, and recommended it to his followers. And, and Is that what really made it take off? I mean, that seemed to be the timing of it, although it may have been it got really popular, and that's how he saw it for the first time, but... The timing was very close, and I really think it was, it was, it was his his encouragement that was really helpful. It was really helpful in that it got a lot of people to see it, but it was also really helpful because I was at a really bad place in my in my head where I thought I was a complete failure as a comedian because that's what depression tells you is that you're worthless. So I I really needed somebody who I admired to say that I was good at this and and it came at a, a really great time and and so I I'm I'm so grateful to to him and and people like that because I I, I tell people a lot of this is is overcoming your your instinct to run yourself down so if in many cases it's a waiter or a wait person who tells you you're really funny or the booker of a club or another comedian, and it really helps. So if you have something nice to say to a performer, you should say it because most of us really need it. Do people still ask you where they can find the documentary about state capitals? <laughs> I mean, state, state abbreviations? <laughs> yes, all the time. And it, and it makes me really happy because that was the... That was the key to the joke, was making people think that this documentary could exist, and, and so, it, so it worked. But I always felt there was a point in the story where you would have to understand that this couldn't have been real. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. I think I know the answer to this one, but what, do you remember the first joke you wrote about uh, depression and um, your whole experience with that? The first one that you said, oh, I think I can make this funny. Yeah, I, I think it was more taking a joke that was about depression 
but never mentions depression and then saying, oh, this is what a depressed person feels like. And it was this story about eating ice cream with a yes. fork. Yeah, this is, this is I, one of my all-time favorite jokes oh, of thanks, years. man. Um, because yeah. I – and it, it's made me uh, think about ice cream differently too. It's mostly the uh, – <laughs> The uh, you know getting the flat surface and the for the day crew yeah. uh, just absolutely oh my kills gosh. me. <laughs> I mean that it's 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 uh, I I mean if I if I were a person studying me I would say this is really interesting but because it's me it's I I don't want to go too far in saying this is interesting but the idea of flattening the surface in your ice cream was a joke <laughs> that I had tried to make work for years and it didn't work until I told it in the form of. This is what an, a nervous breakdown looks like. You're eating ice cream with a with a fork. So I I always love stories and jokes and ideas that that are very small ideas but represent something much bigger. So I was saying that the fork prints in ice cream are evidence of a life in chaos. And even though early on, five out of ten times, the audience wouldn't laugh at that at that particular sentence, I thought it was important to to keep in there. And finally, when I, when I started being open about my depression, I said, oh, I can tell this story more honestly by saying this is, this is how bad my depression was, was getting, that I was eating ice cream as, as sort of a source of, of late night pleasure when nothing else was getting through my brain. So that was a really special thing that I, when I was trying out jokes about depression, and a lot of them didn't work. I always knew that I had this ace in the hole that I could close pretty strongly with with that joke. So it was it was essential to the to the development of the of the special. And I would just say, just finish it, Gare, just finish it. And I would finish it and I would put the fork down. More times than not, I would eat ice cream with a fork, which is like an unofficial symptom of depression. People say, well, why does that mean you're depressed? It may not, but it does mean at least that you did not possess the zest to wash a spoon. <laughs> People would say, why don't you just wash a spoon? <laughs> why don't I shower? And then finally, I like to give comedians a chance to just shout out anything that is making them laugh. Um, so what's the last piece of comedy or a comedian or something you've seen that just made you laugh really hard? I mean, I, I would say for all comedians, I'll give three recommendations. Maria Bamford's last special that I bought on, on iTunes. I'm not sure where else it's available. Is that the weakness is the brand? I think that was the last yeah. one. Yeah. Whatever the last one was. And I think it's weakness is the brand. I, I, I watch her in different orders, but it's so great. And then I watched Tignataro's special on HBO where it's animated. And then Andy Kindler has an album that came out in 2020. And it's the same thing with Eddie Pepitone's latest album, which I think is called For the Masses, where it almost feels like it was written for just for me and my comedian <laughs> friends. But everybody thinks it fu it's funny. But it, it's, it's, it's such a difficult needle to thread where you make something that's funny to comedians as, as well as, as people who are not professional comedians. But those, those people, I mean, those four people really, really do that. And then somebody was just telling me a joke that Samantha Ruddy told, and I was dying laughing the other, the other night. And so I'm going to listen to her album. I haven't listened to it, but th there's so much 
there's so much great comedy out there. We're we're really lucky. Yeah, and now I think people are finally able to start going to see live comedy in in some ways, which is which is great after this really hard yeah. year and yeah, a half. Yeah, I'm so um, happy about that. So yeah, well. Gary, thank you so much for for doing this and and talking with me. And I, I've just uh, been such a big fan of yours for a long time. So this was a pleasure. That makes me really happy because I love the way you write and I love the questions you ask. And and oh, thanks, man. We had a nice coffee. So hopefully the next time in LA we'll we'll be able to do that again. Thanks so much for including me on this. It's yeah, absolutely. Honestly, a pleasure, and I'll do it anytime within reason. <laughs> Okay, thank you again to Gary Goleman, and at some point I am going to hold him to that promise of coming back on the show. You can get his new book, Misfit, Growing Up Awkward in the 80s, now wherever you get your books, and we'll put a link to it in the description for this episode as well. You can also get tickets for all of his upcoming tour dates, including stops at City Winery in New York, the Wilbur Theater in Boston, and Largo in Los Angeles at GaryGullman.com. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at Last Laugh Pod on Instagram and threads where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes and see who is coming up next week on the show. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you very soon. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.